How do we understand Chinese-ness as a sort of mythic adherence, and how can we sift through the multivalent and haunted histories of the term Chinese, as well as its burdens of national sovereignty? In this first episode of our podcast series, our curator Su Fangzi speaks with film scholar Dr. Elizabeth Wijaya, where Dr. Wijaya traces filmic works and cinematic gestures that inhabit disavow or serve past being Chinese in its weighted sense, to present the notion of the trans-Chinese as an alternative, transitional term to understand and bear its complexities. Altogether, this offers us a way to pay attention to and view the rich and varied histories of the films presented in our film program, The Distant Shore. Hello everyone, welcome to our open conversation of the film program titled The Distant Shore. Um, it is a great honor to have uh, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Wijaya, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Wijaya to join us as our keynote speaker to kick off the series of events. Uh, it is my great honor to also introduce Dr. Wijaya here. Uh, Dr. Elizabeth Wijaya is currently the assistant professor at the Department of Visual Study of Toronto University in Canada. Her research interests include global Chinese cinema, contemporary East and Southeast Asian cinemas, circulating through international film festivals, eco-cinema, cinema ethics, media theory, critical theory, and continental philosophy. She's particularly interest in the material, history, historical, and symbolic entanglements between East Asia and Southeast Asia. Her current book project titled Luminous Flash, The Visible and Invisible World of Trans-Chinese Cinema is a study of the political and philosophical stakes of the transmission of the past corporally and temporally imposed 1980s Chinese cinema in Taiwan, Hong Kong, Singapore, and Malaysia. She's also a co-editor of the special issue on the Reader's 1999 to 2001 seminar on the death penalties, survivals of death sentences, Parallax, uh, Volume 22, Issue Second, Second Issue, um, 2016. So today. Um, in light of her current research project and her very exciting book project, uh, she will going to share with us her presentation title, Someone, Somewhere, Somehow, The Trans-Chinese Between Something and Nothing. Let's welcome Dr. Wijaya. Thank you so much. Thank you for the introduction. And thank you so much to Marianne and Dr. Xu for this opportunity to be in conversation. So I'm going to begin now. The contention over who or what con constitutes Chinese, Sinophone or diaspora is not new, but with the rising threat of ethno-nationalism, the debate is not merely academic. Whether the term Chinese refers to ethnicity or race, citizenship within the People's Republic of China or the Republic of China or affiliation with overseas Chinese or the diasporic Chinese or Han Chinese, or Mandarin, Sinaitic dialects, the ambiguity of the term Chinese 
as it traffics in the intersections of everyday life, media, and bureaucratic discourse harbor a dangerous multivalence. As an idea of ideological, ethnic, national, cultural, or linguistic unity, the term Chinese is without essence, though not without force. The haunting of the term Chinese cinema and the burden of measuring its distance or intimacies with cinema from China is also an effect of what Naoki Sakai calls the modern regime of translation, where translation is presumed to be between two national languages with internal coherence, though a closer look may reveal that the disunities were always audible, if not legible. Two common ways of translating Chinese are zhong or hua. The former as center forms part of the Middle Kingdom term for China, and the latter often refers to people or language of Chinese descent, before including topolex or dialects, the term for standardized Chinese language varies across countries. Taiwan, which also has the Zhonghua in its name, Zhonghua Mingguo, Republic of China, uses national language, Guoyu, and China uses the term Putonghua, ordinary language. In Singapore and Malaysia, the term Chinese is used on an everyday level as Huaren or Huayi. Even before a deeper investigation of the etymology of Hua or Zhong or Chinese, the effective legacies of contested territorial boundaries shadow the terms. To ventriloquize Victor Fan, who recounts in his recent book, Extraterritoriality, that if someone asks him, Victor, are you Chinese? And he will feel compelled to deny it. No, I am not Chinese. I do so because China has never been part of my process of becoming an individual and becoming a subject. Victor continues, Each time I'm being asked who I am or where it is that I come from, I always need to go through the agony of putting a label bestowed upon me under erasure. With terms such as Chinese National Cinema, National Language Cinema, Chinese Language Cinema, Sinophone cinemas, transnational Chinese cinema, or diasporic Chinese cinemas, each naming attempt is grounded in apprehensions of what counts for a people, a nation, an entity, and the forging of unities or something in common amidst heterogeneities and even incompatibilities. What appears to be taxonomic concerns reveal the frictions between life captured under inscribed conditional boundaries and the non-identitarian possibilities of human and non-human life. In his provocatively titled article, Fuck Chineseness, Alan Chun suggests that Hua could be the depoliticized term. However, in Singapore, since the first census in 1824, during the British colonial era, Huaren forms part of the Chinese, Malay, Indian, and others racial classification that continues to govern biopolitical life. In the quotidian Singapore experience, the commonplace usage of Huaren is an example of the politics of everyday life, where the colonial legacies of the CMIO classification, whether visibly or invisibly, 
permeate the structures of governance and experience. The term Chinese that remains obdurately opaque, like a mythic inheritance that adheres stickily to the flesh of skin and tongue, is both something that is strange and familiar. In Singapore, a person's race, as one example, of the inheritance of British colonialism and patrilineality is indicated on the identity card of a citizen or permanent resident. And the general rule is that a person's race follows that of his or her father. At the juncture of coloniality, transnationality, and area studies, the modifiers and classifications of cinema speak to the tensions between the fraught dream of the universal, that all cinema is just cinema, and the pool of the particular, local knowledge, legacies, and topolex. The French philosopher Jacques Derrida's resonant line in Monolingualism of the Other, quote, I have only one language, it is not mine, speaks of a dispossession that offers a chance for escape, where the de-individuated I too does not merely belong to the surface and sedimentation of language, race, nation, or land, such that the inchoate shadow of being someone, somewhere, somehow, offers a space of retreat and reserve, of opacity to invoke dissent, and the chance to be between something and nothing. The inexactitude of these terms expresses the space of possibilities held open by the uncertain the partial and the messy that refuses the determination of historically imposed or inherited identities. Through the material and phantasmatic densities of the imagination, that structure, racialization, the dusty dream of that something in common remains. But in the shadow of this dream lurks the continuing nightmare of one form of humanity that calls itself the West, extending its shadow over the world designated as the rest. Following Naoki Sakai's lifelong critique of how area studies as a disciplinary formation has roots in colonialist divisions of humanity contributed to by the illusion of a unitary nation or language. How may a work move beyond an area studies model that only seems to be concerned about the area of study without betraying the particularities of the area. The escape from this impasse can neither be to stretch one particularity into a universality or to rely on the essentiality of any particularity as if it was a universe unto its own. How may we live with these epistemic inheritances without rejecting memory, experience, and without reification. In line with Sandra Mazadra's and Brett Nelson's reminder that fictive identification is nevertheless still real, treating the fraud term Chinese as fictional does not dispel its political force nor negate the processes that builds up the fictive force of ethnicity in the governing structures of embodied lives from the legal fictions of a nation-state to the micro and macro narratives of everyday life. Instead of placing a film as being on a line that divides the is and is not, 
of Chinese cinema because a film is not Chinese or too Chinese. I propose the term trans-Chinese as an epistemic lens with the sense of transnational, transgenerational, translational, transmedia, and the transitional, where the overdetermined and fraught notion of the Chinese can be transgressed. In other words, to treat a work as if it were somehow Chinese, only in the hope of reaching a transitional or transfer point when its mark can be the faintest, turning from origins to orientation, from criteria and capture to escaping from within. The trans-Chinese does names to provisional, the interval, and the movement of vacillation between the something and the nothing. It is, as someone once told me, a form of tearing with the negative to seek the non-place of this marker without the peskiness of the essentializing-ness within that which can be named as Chinese in one form or another. From the example of Mahua or Malaysian Chinese literature, Carlos Rohal argues that categorization based on any single criterion of nationality, language or ethnicity neglects the, quote, dialectical tensions between the local and the universal and between origin and dissemination. As Carlos Raha wants, this approach could, quote, potentially reaffirm a traditional system of national-based, nation-based or language-based classification. Jerome de Claude reminds us of the, quote, contradictory array of practices, experiences and past that the notion of Chineseness is premised upon. And in Trans-Pacific Attachments, Lily Wong argues that Chineseness is a historically charged form of sociality that is mediated effectively. More broadly, Brett DeBerry propose, proposes that instead of a specific place, Asia can be provisionally thought of as, quote, a mode of relating to others and to the other within. Recently, Tina Chen has theorized that the frame of global Asia is a form of verging on the impossible with, quote, the multidisciplinary, temporally unstable, and polyvalent field engendered by work that accounts for myriad Asias and their even more multifarious diasporas. Perhaps it is through the partiality of being, following Marilyn Stratton's work on partial connections, somewhere in the partiality of the space between the non-Chinese, trans-Chinese, almost Chinese, no longer Chinese, under erasure, under forgetting, in exile, in hiding, that the something of the Chinese can remain as a memory without essence, though not without history. And this is where cinema re-enters the scene. In contesting the institutional forms that govern biopolitical lives, Cinema as an aesthetic possibility is at the nexus of the visibilities and invisibilities of the forms and frames of lives. Each film in this inspired selection by the NUS Museum 
comes with rich and varied histories. Flowers of Shanghai, released in 1998, directed by Ho Xiaoxian, set in 1884 Shanghai with a screenplay by Ho's longtime collaborator, Chu Tianwen, who worked with Eileen Chan's translation of the Han Banqing novel, Shanghai Hua, that was posthumously published by Eileen Chang's death as a sing-song of Shanghai. So this is a novel written in the world dialect that Eileen Chang trans- translated into Mandarin and English. And you have Letters from the South, a 2013 omnibus produced by Tan Chui, Ming, Tan Chui Mui, who is the co-founder of Da Huang Pictures, who led the Malaysian New Wave. And the omnibus featured works by Adita Asarat, features works by Adita Asarat, Royston Tan, Midi Zi, Sui Mui, Tai Ming Lang, and Sang Ko. And Midi Zi's segment in Letters from the South is related to his debut feature film, Return to Burma, 2011, which reveals the legal and illegal routes of migration and trafficking between Taiwan, Myanmar, Malaysia, and China, whether by the visual or in conversations. The film is also concerned with the price of everything, from that of appliances to celebrate gendered lives. And with the premise that the distance of memory is the distance of diasporas, and through a random encounter with a painting, Xuan Wu's This Shaw, 2020, enacts a trajectory of chance and fate through Taiwan, the United States, with fantasies and ghostly legends. And also with Moon Over Malaya, directed by Chun Kim and released in 1957 in Cantonese. It's a film that is restored by the Asian Film Archive as part of the Nanyang Trilogy. These truncated histories and very brief details do very little justice to the intertwining walls and vistas of each film. They each bring about a different visibility or of many different visibilities and intensities to the marker of Chinese and cinema. There will always be more than the sum of its histories, origins, and summaries. In recently rewatching a few of these works in my living room in Toronto, my new diasporic settler location, but diasporic in relation to only drifting senses of home, the three images that flicker in my mind are a hairpin on the table, in Flowers of Shanghai, one of the few close-ups in the film. A mundane yet devastating reunion scene over a bowl of noodles in Return to Burma. And the shadows on the wall and reflections in water in Walking on Water, one of the segments in Letters from the South. And a painting on a restaurant that ties together chance and fate in Xuan Wu's This Shore. From these fragments, I think about how the making and unmaking, watching and remembering of cinema precedes epistemological clarity or ontological conviction. The cinematic experience flourishes in the poetic space of the as-if and the time of the as-of. The fog of unknowing, the mist of memories, slippages from the grounds of certainty Cinema could heal a nation or a people, but it could also, perhaps more critically, be a mean of dispossession 
and repossession or avenue of awakening into another dream of new, even unfettered, relational formations. Thank you. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. This is a really timely and amazing uh, presentation you have given to us. Um, I'm very, very, very poetic. And I think also um, without compromising the groundedness of the theoretical articulation, I think it's also very close to home thinking about um, you're watching all this film in University of Toronto <laughs> that you had settled in as you open your new experiences as well. Um, I mean, one of the most resonant moments to think about your presentation on the topic of cinema and the reconsideration of the Chineseness, obvious. We are also trying to have that conversation with um, the museum's own collection, which I think also speaks very closely to your concern on cinematic production. And I particularly appreciate when you mentioned that one beautiful line talking about the notion of Chinese and cinema, a form of telling with negativity. And that very much reminds me the reading of uh, Theodore Adorno's dialect, Dialectics of Enlightenment. I mean, as a writing, positioning and formulating right after the World War and thinking about the causality has been done by human beings. And that really leads me to ask you this question, like, how do you, you, you did mention about the colonial legacies of our current understanding of Chinese, in particular in, in Southeast Asia. And when you zoom out to the larger framework of the regional geopolitics to think about the notion of Chineseness, how much is that negativity comes into the persistent war or the forever war looming around the region, particularly thinking about the displacement and voluntary travel uh, among multiple generations of Chinese and its Chineseness or non-Chineseness. Yeah, no, thank you so much for, um, for, for your comments, right? And uh, for um, bringing in the larger sort of very urgent geopolitics of the region. And I think that the term Chinese is something that, um, yeah, that 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 is a both a commonplace and something that is very scary, right? And it is something that so, for example, there there is a way to approach cinema where I could not want to frame it with the term, right? Where I could, for example, consider um, the media aesthetics in a in a certain way that doesn't have to tarry with this term, right? And and many. Um, thinkers have done it very successfully. But I think that there would be sort of like a looming absence to, to bypass the term. So I think my interest in the term and all that it suggests has to do with my interest um, with, the, with the nation. And I think that these two are very closely tied together. The, the, the problematics of thinking um, Chinese and the problematics of the nation state, which is related to what um, the point you raised about the displacement of people um, in the 20th century. And um, I mean, as, as one aspect of this persistent war, right? And, and we see this ramifications and continuation in the 21st century, of course. And um, right, so, yeah, so I think 
one thing that I'm very interested in is, I mean, one of the questions is, how how can we think historically, and in a way that is um, that treats memories and experience very importantly, without being um, like without only being able to think within the frames of geopolitics, right? Without being trapped within um, the frames of and and when I say geopolitics, I mean that there's there's certain ways of thinking about like macro politics that is very deterministic, and yet even when we call we name it as deterministic, that this those are the legacy terms that we're working with. So, like even the term like Southeast Asia, right? Like what it invokes. I mean, so many scholars have have um for lack of a better word deconstructed or or have told and retold the many different ways that we can tell this story of Southeast Asia. And yet in, again, I'm, I'm fixing, I'm I'm thinking about cinema always, but the what impacts cinema also impacts things that are more than cinema, right? So for example, even when it comes to film festivals, qualifications for, for grants, for co-productions, the definition of Southeast Asia is still very much linked to ASEAN, right? The countries that are in, the countries that are out. And of course, then the question of Taiwan is very interesting, right? Taiwan's relation to, um, to, to Southeast Asia, Hong Kong's relation to Southeast Asia. So what I'm very interested is to say, so how can I think in a way that, that that works with the frame, right? That doesn't sort of have an academic hubris of saying, I will not work with this frame because this frame is full of illusions or is completely porous. But to say that I want to work with this frame because this is the frame that is still an important contestation in our lives, right? This this that's why I mentioned the the frames of lives, right? That the the terms and and the kind of histories that um that we have inherited and that we still work with. But how then can um can we see even within these frames modes of relationality that already that already exit um certain definitions. Which is why I'm very interested in in the works that other scholars have done. For example, Tina Chen's very careful work with global Asia's and the naming of um, imaginable geographies or structural incoherence. And and yet there's always that dilemma, right? Of because and that's why I, with this talk I'm focusing on on these vague words that have come to grow very fond of the someone somewhere somehow. Right, that um, in a way is is very elementary. These are almost like how to tell a story in elementary school. Someone, somewhere, somehow, something. But I think holding on to to that um, kernel of inexactitude can be something that is both important and yet never loses sight of. And again, coming back to your question, this very real questions of geopolitics, right? So, for for example, in my um, in my undergraduate class and on Taiwan New Cinema and its legacies, like next week we are um, discussing the film Tony Wang Shi, right? A Time to Live, A Time to Die. And that's one film in which you can definitely see the, the multi-generational differences, but also effective structures of, um, of the diaspora and also the, the moment of diaspora and that the relation to um, changing notions of home through through language. So it's definitely something that I never want 
um, want to dismiss, right, that the, the, the importance of effective structure. So as not to come from like a certain academic perspective and say, you cannot think this, you cannot, you cannot say this, but more like, what, what is it that have uh, strongholds over us? So that's my very long response to a um, very important question recently. Thank you so much, Dr. Wijaya. I think it's very precise in a sense, coming back to your reference of, uh, I think Glasson play a very strong role in, in, in your presentation. And I think there are a few phrases, for instance, even the, even the proposal of trends, the notion of trends is not so much in this presentation as what I have you know, uh, come to appreciate so much is it's not just about the transgression. I think there's a very strong, um, genuine request for the kind of deterritorial understanding um, of the of the identity politics in itself, which has burdened so much. Yes. And in a sense, do you think do you think the effect I mentioned of what cinema can carry and what cinema can remember. I mean, especially I like how you how you how you nominate Tony Wang Shi, um, which I, I believe is another Ho Xiaoxian's earlier work. And it's almost autobiographical as well. Uh, thinking about his relocation to Taiwan earlier in the kind of veteran villages experiences. I, I want to hear also from you how much is the cinematic moment allow us to almost reconciliate the kind of the micro moments around the certain the frictions of this present has been memorized and mesmerized us in the present to a very very important proposal you have been put together and nominating a group of films have been, you know, from your work on this notion of the trans Chinese-ness. Uh, trans Chinese, sorry. No, um, yeah, man, I think you have spoken very beautifully of what cinema can carry and what cinema can remember. And I also, I think about this term carrying also, this, um, this bearing, right? So, uh, and there's something about um, yeah, there's something about the simple terms that I, I'm most fascinated by this this idea something, something almost very muscular and about caring. So I'm very interested in the corporeality right, of of cinema, sort of carrying these walls, right, and that is carrying memories, and but it is carrying also the possibilities of um, of walls that that are only imagined or walls that are already foreclosed, right. So and. It's interesting because we never say we were going to talk about Tony and Wang Shi, but it's like the, now that we are talking about it, something that, and I think just to bring back, and I'm looking at your background, of course, right? At, at, um, at, yeah, of this, this virtual museum background. So I, I start thinking about the importance of like material culture, the importance of things, right? And then with Tony and Wang Shi, um, I think what really, something that's, that really stayed with me is the rattan furniture, right? The, the, the sense right at the end of the uh, towards the end of the film the realization that because um, the older generation had thought that their time in Taiwan was tra transitory so they had made do right just making do with cheaper rattan furniture um, just thinking that any day now they they will be walking back 
um, to China, right? And then um, I feel like for maybe for for some people, I think like if again I'm, I'm in my home and I'm staring across at my IKEA furniture, the sense of when you are like a student moving from place to place, I have a couch that I was taught I was gonna let go of a long time ago, and I don't know what I'm still doing in my house. Right, so there's this again the 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 objects, right? And then I'm thinking about what you're saying, right? The like, um, yes, the cinematic moment has the ability to both memorize and mesmerize. And this, these are your beautiful terms that that there is a way, and this um, the moments of reconciliation, and and as you said, um, either my emphasis is not so much on just on transgression because I think that what I mean one of the methods that I want to work with is really to work with the textures of cinema, to work with the affordances of and of um of the media rather than for example so as i mean using the, those moments and those scenes and those textures as the beginning of an entry rather than for example my my own political convictions or my own philosophical desires of course and i think with um cinema what what it does is that it, it enacts meeting places right and it's part of this multiplication of um of shared archives and shared walls in the way it it reenacts this problem of being someone in the world with somebody else, right? And that the moment, and I find it very fascinating, even in the moment of the of the pandemic, but long before the pandemic, when you no longer could assume, right, that cinema was is about bodies in a physical theater with a larger than live screen, even when that has sort of is um, no longer the the assumption or or possibly even the norm. That image is still a very enduring image. So I'm, I'm again also very fascinated about um, the things of cinema that that endures even when certain things have already come um, come to pass. Thank you so much for your response. I think that's absolutely. I think all of us miss those moments going back to cinema, seeing the work in a large screen, and that I think that immersiveness in certain sense means so much for like cross-generational memories on a kind of gathering moment. But in the meantime, when you were when you were when you're presenting your wonderful proposal on, you know, I think a truly group, truly important work for our current understanding, whether it's I don't think it's just limited on understanding the Chinese. I think it's also on the formation of ethnicity and the biopolitics at the present moment. I also would like to stress and want to ask you this question on how does the transmedia, I mean, aspect, because the work you have done for your own work, obvious also across a period of time, and that period of time from the 80s to the post 80s is also the rise of the digital cinema movement. So I, I'm quite curious in in the region and in the field, um, coming back to the regional specificity of the digital moment that you will actually, you know, step into when you conduct your research. I mean, how does that transmedia moment also contribute to this, to your discussion and the framework you are proposing right here on the trans Chineseness? Thank you so much. Um... Yes, it's following up on your point on cross-generational memories, right? And this um the transmedia moment. And and absolutely I'm very 
I think through my investigation of this problematics of the Chinese, I'm absolutely very concerned about this. Um, as well, I think your terms is really on this, on the formations of ethnicity and biopolitics and this sort of um, very present problem of like ethnocentric nationalism, right? So, and, and the way in which um, transmediality for me is related is that the um, like changes in technology bring bring about changes in affordances. It brings about the possibilities, like new sets, different sets of visibilities, different sets of voices that can be heard. So, for example, um, while I think like in the post two thousand moment, you really have a certain set of voices who were um, lamenting the death of cinema. Right, um, that some people think this is the death of cinema because of this um, the receding of film technology for so many reasons, whether uh, right for cost for process, and that with digital cinema you are you're ever further from reality. Right, so that's one one theorization that digital cinema will bring us further from reality because um, the film stop has a strong indexical relation to reality. But for me, at the same moment, you could see. Um, in, for example, just focusing on Southeast Asia, not limited to Southeast Asia, but very, very evident in Southeast Asia is that you saw the rise of um, new ways of filmmaking in many different countries. And not just new ways, but but new voices. Um, you saw a greater like diversification of filmmakers from different social classes. Like this basically was a, a breaking of uh, certain barriers for, for being able to to um yeah to, to make films and I think what I'm fascinated about in relation to my interest in contemporary Southeast Asian cinema is um this I mean this yeah this the new set of relational possibilities. So what the what the transmedia, what the what the digital bring us is not um is not like one thing succeeding the next because and you see this in uh, the films of this selection. Right, so for example, um, we are able, like for example, uh, Jen was uh, this show, right? Is is something that um, is is makes media, right? It is something that is concerned about painting. It is shot using a variety of different um, technological possibilities, right? And I think that has an impact on on the form, right? It has impact on the style. It's an impact as to how um, this director is able to tell what. It's subtitled as a family story, but it's a it's a sprawling family story that's not only uh, geographically sprawling, but but this director also wants to give provide access into into the realm of fantasy, into the realm of performance and and acting, right? And um, also we moon over Malaya, right? The the possibilities of um, restoration, right? The possibilities, and so we are also really in a moment where uh, film restorations where um, the re-release of yeah of re uh, restored films and of course with re film restorations is never a straight thing about like and I mean there's so many interesting stories of finding like film reels in certain archives but it's never a straight thing and then ta-da you have this digitally pristine copy right because there's always uh, what gets lost or what what becomes different along the way um, so I mean really thinking about so I'm so I'm super fascinated about yes thinking transmedially in in all the ways in which the transmedia can bring up 
can help us um, see or can help um, yeah, a filmmakers like bring into being or filmmakers explore um, sets of relational formations that could negotiate um, with yeah, that could negotiate differently or bypass or solve past um, these frames of geopolitical existence. That's truly a relevant conversation. We come to think about the idea of archive and restoration. Because I, I think you were also involved in, 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 in some of the program with the uh, Asian Film Archive uh, in Singapore, also touching upon a very similar notion of migration. But we tend to we tend to forget the film itself, the film itself and the traveling of the cinema, especially since uh, I think since also before the war and in the, in the post-war moment, you have the rising of the regional cinema production. And I think that's also a very exciting moment. And do want to hear a little bit more about you. Like, how do you think there's a possibility that we can tap into, I think, the resources of the past. I think it's, the, it's really come to the memory of the cinematic in itself, within the cinematic itself, and come to could possibly benefit to our current conversation and allow us to um, possibly think about, I think the media specificity in conversation with the region. Yes, thank you. So um, with Asian Film Archives, a few years ago, I curated um, a series on migratory times. And with that series, I was very interested in um, the moments of migration, right? But also very much with how cinema itself is migrating, right? So some of the films in that selection, I, I was interested in, um, not, not only for its, like its narratives on migration, but because they were telling that um, they were each made like a certain transitional times, right? Um, and yeah, I, I think what is um, I think what you're saying about this, um, this like this cinematic, like. How should I say? Yeah, I'm, I'm very interested in thinking about moments where the cinematic moment and the political moment coheres or are in productive uh, are in productive uh, frictions. And I think for so for example, like there's a way in watching cinema where there's an assumption that cinema is like for example merely representative, or that we you know you could teach about migration or teach about like Hong Kong, Taiwan and we watch a film, right? And even though I'm not saying that we cannot do that, but I seldom say we cannot do anything, but it's more like the, the set of limitations is that then the cinem the cinematic itself is not in question, right? So it's as if one or other was transparent. But whereas um, my interest in sort of this the multiplicity of cinema and the multiple possibilities of cinema is not just in, for example, um, a curated series where we are watching five films but sort of even thinking about um the the impact of that one film in different moments or the ways in the different entries right the different entries into a certain film can can already provide the 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 possibilities of a of a shared archive of thinking thinking plurally of thinking um oh yeah of thinking from different entryways so for example um from this rewatching re of Flowers of Shanghai in my, in my living room, right? Where, and I realized that sort of as a, as an early career film scholar, I, I had not used my Blu-ray player for like two half years. 
And I was like, oh, I got this new restart. And I was like, it doesn't even play. It doesn't even work. And I had to oh, buy this wow. and buy that. And I'll get all these things set up in order to access, right? To have access to this to this restoration. I wanted to see the extras and the DVD. And I think it was in, in that moment of watching uh, Flowers of Shanghai, which is a film that I've never seen in the theater, right? And it's a, like sometimes life circumstances are that you have to confess what, the, what have you never seen in the cinema, right? So, and then... Mm. There was something about rewatching in this moment that I was very fixated on this, the image of the hairpin that when I first watched it, I think upon first, <coughs> excuse me, upon first watching, I was like, you know, um, in my memory, right? It was the, the eating and dinner scenes, but this time it was that moment of the hairpin that, that really struck me. And I was thinking about, it's like the rattan chair, if I'm talking about whole house and the rattan chair in, um, a time to live, a time to die, or this moment of happiness of Flowers of Shanghai. So, like on the one hand, you can give a summary of a film, like like I did with Flowers of Shanghai. That like some some facts, and these facts are important, that you could go down all these rabbit holes. All that is that all all that is always that the moment of the former aesthetic that I always want to remember, right? That this never just about the summary or um this recounting of the narrative, but what is it about certain cinematic moments and how they are framed that can, as as you're saying, that that can, um, like some of the terms that you have used, right, that can provide moments of reconciliation, right, that can provide moments of, um, so again, just really thinking about the placing of objects, right, in, in your virtual background, right, sort of like, and how, how in cinema is this, like a different, I think I'm thinking about yeah, arrangements, right, the, the importance of arrangements, the importance of, I mean, Rancia makes a big deal of it when he talks about the distribution of the sensible. But I'm thinking, right, in because I'm very interested in thinking very concretely also, like the, the placement of the, the particular, the placement of the material, and how does how does that because I mean in that film and those of you who who are watching this recording to to watch that film, right? So like that that happiness so critical in in the plot and it says so much about the affective structures of of the characters, right? It says so much about about gender and class and possibilities and displacement, right? The displacement of affects onto an object, and also it's the happiness. I'll say so much about the what what goes unspoken, right? That the that when there's like a obdurate material reminder of the many things that are that are unspoken or that cannot be recounted in an essay form in a film, right? And then you have an enduring image. That was a wonderful and eloquent, beautiful say on. I do think what you has leads us to think about is what we have been trying to, I think, make sense of dealing with a historical object, just like behind me, <laughs> a painting's cross uh, 200 years. And what does that have to do with the present? But I, I do think, um, Dr. Wijoyo, I think you did, did this to us and just encourage us to think about not just the social life of the present moment engaging with the film, but I think how the film offer our understanding of that social life in that both the time capsule, but it's symbolic relevance to the present. And that specificity of the placement is particularly, I think, refreshing, allow us to very much uh, reconsider like our film program, having a sense in this, in this, um, I think in, in the new opening you have offered to us throughout today's conversation on the notion of trans Chinese, 
truly appreciate and really thank you so cannot thank you enough to bring us this um, inspiring and I, I, I will also say encouraging conversation on this somehow has been very much demonized and became a kind of moral panic turned on the Chinese-ness with a new light understanding its very potential and a very, um, I think, and also the historical density and the complexity on these terms. Thank you so much for joining us tonight and I wish you um, have a wonderful day in Toronto. So, I want to thank you so much. It has been um, such a great pleasure and it is has been so um, invigorating and stimulating to be in conversation with you and I will uh, spend the day thinking about what you just said on the social lives of the present moment. I think that one of the hardest things to do is really this thinking of the what is the contemporary, what is this present moment that we are sharing, right? especially in our current pandemic times when there's so many forms of virtualization and yet there are still so many important moments that we are sharing. So thank you so much for um, yeah this uh, wonderful like interlude right in my confined days in um, Toronto and, and speaking about all the things that we have not seen in person right i hope one day we'll be we'll be able to meet and we'll have a yes, absolutely. conversation <laughs> absolutely so, so thank you so much uh, to you to marianne to nes museum for this opportunity to be in conversation We've come to the end of our first episode with Dr. Wajaya, and I hope you enjoyed sitting in and listening to the illuminating conversation between Dr. Wajaya and Fang Zi. This podcast series is a part of the NUS Museum film program, The Distant Shore, which spans feature and short films, podcast episodes, and a film club. In this rolling podcast series, we speak to academics, artists, and curators to unpack the complexities of discourse tangent to the film program and its films, excavating historical moments and memories through cinema, while peering through the complications and tensions that spring out from the troubled notions of cosmopolitanism and modernity emerging at the dawn of globalization in the early 1900s to the present. This film program is conceived around the NUS Museum exhibition, Fistful of Colors, up for view, now in our Lee Kong Chien Gallery. Join us for other podcast episodes by following us on Spotify and our SoundCloud and find out more about our film program, The Distant Shore, via our website at museum.nus.edu.sg slash thedistanceshore. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at NUS Museum for more updates. Thank you so much for spending time with us today and we hope to see you again soon. Mm-hmm.